This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Anishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee people. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this territory, even virtually, and to be in this community. We commit ourselves to the work of reconciliation among settlers and Indigenous peoples, and we acknowledge that not all settlers were brought here by choice. Through this land acknowledgement, our intent is to honor and show gratitude to the original and ongoing stewards of the land as a sign of respect and willingness to learn and heal. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together, may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to The Intersection, where we are building community through candid conversations that lift, inspire, and advance social change. It's time to really question what best practice is in the social sector. How can we move forward with inclusion, diversity, equity, and belonging when we are stuck in archaic systems? I'm thrilled to welcome Tanya Hannah Rumble and Nicole McBann back into the hub to update us on their work building a strong community practice. Tanya and Nicole are longtime collaborators and respected fundraising leaders. Together they have led learning sessions and facilitated workshops for more than 2,000 professional fundraisers across North America and in Europe. They cover topics of power and privilege, equity, diversity and inclusion, and fundraising. Um, They have a long list of really impressive clients and they bring a unique blend of deep expertise as professional fundraisers, um, the vulnerability they share and cultivate in their learning sessions through their collective lived experience as racialized, disabled, and trans non-binary professionals, and the power to help folks examine sensitive and challenging topics such as race, oppression, and privilege with non-judgment. Tanya is a racialized settler of multi-ethnic origins living in Takaranto. She is a fundraiser who has raised millions for some of Canada's largest charities. Nicole McDan is a strategic nonprofit leader with 20 years experience in Canada and abroad. Their expanse spans many areas, including corporate philanthropy, individual community-based giving, volunteer development, national event management, and alumni giving. And they are currently the Vice President of Philanthropy and Marketing at the United Way of Greater Toronto. And I'm also thrilled that Nicole has joined us for a few episodes this season as a co-host. And they have really long bios with extensive work experience that I've included in the show notes, so I encourage you to take a look. Um, But let's get into the conversation, because I know you don't want to sit here listening to me the whole time. Tanya and Nicole, welcome back. We're so glad to have you back. Um, Thank you for making time to be here for this conversation today. We're so happy to be back. Um, All right. So our last podcast last year, I felt like it ended too soon. Like we just got into 
the spiciness of your work. And uh, then the podcast was over. So I want to congratulate you, first of all, for continuing to do um, your community of practice. And at the outset, I probably should just you know, as a white cisgendered female, if I say or do anything that causes harm in this conversation, will you please call me out on it? Because I'm still learning and, uh, and I'm learning a lot from both of you. Um, we'd be happy, we'd be happy to call you in, because there's space for everyone in these conversations. And so whatever your identity is, uh, we know you come from a place of love and good intention. And so we'll call you in. And uh, I would hope that you would do the same for us as well, because we're all learning. See, I'm going to cry already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, we are talking today, you know, this, it might have been on LinkedIn or something. I heard one of you commenting on best practice and what is best practice in fundraising? And 2022 is, a, is it probably a year where we are all redefining all of our systems and structures. And I'm curious about the fallacies of fundraising that you both are talking about now. Um, before we get into well, we that, love, I- we love alliteration, Kim. Yeah, it's so cool. I love it too. The five fallacies of fundraising. Um, before we get into that, I, I also want to acknowledge Paul is here too. Hey, Paul. Hey. Happy to be back as well. So how do you want to start? What do you think? Why don't we just go through them? What motivated you to start to um, question what we typically refer to as best practice in the sector? feel like we've been it, this is like an iterative process for us and like these five fallacies are like a synthesis of ideas that we've been kicking around for a few years together and have now kind of crystallized in this list people love listicles and mm-hmm. things that they can like wrap their mind around so like conceptually frameworks are helpful to like bridge people's understanding of new ideas and so for Nicole and I I think as a result of like kind of our emerging identities and like our emerging like acceptance of our own identities and our intersectionality and how that shows up in our work have been questioning a lot of things and questioning like all the things that we thought and believed. Um, I did not start my career in fundraising. So, um, and I came from a background in public policy and health promotion. So when I came into the fundraising community, I didn't have any specific training around fundraising. So what I learned was what I learned on the job and what people taught me and what elders and those with more experience in fundraising and philanthropy believed and know and relied on as like truisms or best practice. And over the years, like, I think we've all had experiences where those best practices or the notion of those being the best practices have been questioned, but we sort of like filed those experiences away as one-offs or like not something that could be like seen as a pattern. But as Nicole and I have gone on this journey of like really talking and dismantling like the power and privilege structures that are so inherent to this idea of fundraising, this transactional nature of like money and people asking for money, um, we kind of identified these like five things that we think Um, are worth like looking at really critically and seeing like, do these actually serve us? If our goal is to 
create impact because our goal as fundraisers shouldn't just be to like raise money like there's like a never that's like never ending we should really be focused on like impact and if we're working for a particular organization what is the impact of that like mission statement or vision for that organization and how can we um, achieve that then what are some of the th ways in which we do that work of like building relationships and building coalition, working with beneficiaries, working with donors, both individual, corporate and, and foundation that are, what are some of those practices that are like actually hindering an ability to create authentic relationships with donors, but also to like create and preserve inclusive and equitable ecosystems within the charitable sector, because donors are just like one part of the equation as our fundraisers. There's actually a whole lot of other folks in there. And I think that's probably like that's one of the one of the ones that we we talk about, which is number three, which is like donor centricity should trump everything else. It's like, well, a donor wouldn't be there if there wasn't something for them to fund. And like, usually they're not the one that like created the idea to fund. They're there to be a catalyst to support an already existing idea. So I think we need to remember all of the players in the ecosystem. And that's like an underpinning of all five of these fallacies is that like fundraising is broader than the money and the people that have the most amount of money or the most amount of power in this sector. So I'll pause there and I'll turn it over to Nicole. No pressure, Nicole. <laughs> How to follow up Tanya, this is my life. Um, for, uh, absolutely, I think, so there's there's five of them. And we can yeah, start, through. let's start at number one. Start at, I would like to start at number two. Okay. Uh, so uh, number two is the donor or volunteer is always right. Uh, this is my favorite one to hate. Uh, because I think this is the one that is a core tenant of a fundraising and something that uh, as new fundraisers get into this work, it's one of the first things you learn. The donor is right. The volunteer is right. And it comes from for-profit world, I would say, of the customer is always right. That's a very common phrase in our lexicon. And so as we think about this one, the donor is always right. I think it is, is fundamentally flawed. And I think about fundraising as a relationship. And the deeper the relationship you have with somebody, the, the stronger the connection and the more be mutually beneficial it is. Fundraising is essentially like everything else in life, it's around love and relationships. And so to, to use this one of the donor is always right, there's an immediate power imbalance uh, that can be extremely stressful. So you're already starting off in the wrong space. Um, and there's also an immediate issue with weak or no boundaries. Um, and I think about this a lot in fundraising where you have this profession that immediately feels subservient and has to adhere to whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. And to Tanya's earlier point, donors come to charities, to nonprofits, to movements, to make a difference. They typically come with very great intentions to do something. They feel like they have some resources to give, uh, whether they're a donor or volunteer, whatever that resource may be. And they're coming to you uh, to be able to execute on that, to support that. And I think about every other profession and every other uh, kind of relationship we have. You don't, you don't walk into a doctor's office 
Uh, and the doctor doesn't think the patient's always right. Uh, and now we can talk about that. That's probably a different podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, most of the time there's, there's this relationship where there is a level of expertise, a level of, of experience and a level of knowledge. And so to reimagine this is, is to reset expectations first for yourself and your organization about what is acceptable, uh, what is adhered to, what the relationship should look like, and then to think about how you set expectations and boundaries with donors and volunteers. And many, many, I think that one of the tenets of a good relationship is being clear about what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, and how to navigate through tension and conflict. And essentially, if you put, flip this fallacy on its head and say, we're coming to this relationship as a knowledge exchange, as a, a resource exchange, it completely changes the dynamic and it places fundraisers and organizations more in a power balance than an imbalance, which uh, can generate a lot healthier relationships. So that's why I wanted to start with number two, because it is just my favorite one and one that I think that if we can wrap our heads around it, could make substantive change in terms of how we do this work. Right. Go ahead, Paul. It it reminds me of our conversation with Lisa Greer, the donor who just recently wrote a book. And one of the things that was really powerful was she was saying, you know, I moved from a very community uh, centric donor and a board member and all of that to finding personal wealth through uh, the business success and then being shot out of a cannon into major gifts, the stratosphere. And she said, it was a world without definitions that I had no idea how to navigate. I was being, you know, she, she was really obsessed over being told you got to make a year end gift before December 31st. But she said also, nobody gave me boundaries. Nobody explained the rules. And actually, I think for a lot of donors, they probably would appreciate it a bit more mm-hmm. because yeah. for them, there's no boundaries and it's weird and creepy for people to be sidling up to you at, you know, at golf courses and all these different places. It would be really helpful, I think. And this is the one, Nicole, I'm also finding for a lot of young fundraisers, this is the deal breaker. This is the one they really feel my values are the line. And this is probably going to cross it. So maybe I don't go further into this part of the profession. And that is a very dangerous place. I also think about with with number two, you know, and the concept of working with donors to collaborate more uh, and have a dialogue and to shift that power and balance Um, I think about all of the sexual harassment that we have in the charitable sector and how powerless female fundraisers are in relationships with mostly older white men. And so number two, I could see really has potential of thinking about that differently and empowering female fundraisers to not have to, you know, put up with lots of hugging and cheek kisses and inappropriate donor behavior. Well, I think there's also this really kind of interesting dichotomy at play, because one of the things I remember when I first became a fundraiser was like this expectation of like 
learning as much as you can about the cause and being that expert and that knowledge broker. But then as soon as you get in a room with a donor and you're presenting them a proposal and they've got some very specific ideas of how they think that gift should be utilized or the best way to achieve impact, all of that like sort of knowledge that you've like acquired and all the other knowledge brokers in the room sort of crumble and go, interesting idea. Yeah, could try that. Well, why are we, you know, why are we in positions where we're expected to have some level of expertise, but then, you know, we can't trust that expertise. We can't trust that like knowledge that we've acquired because we believe that someone who's had success in the business community or has acquired wealth through like familial connections or generational wealth, like why do we then trust that source greater than our own sort of intuition or our own acquired knowledge about a given topic and approach to solving a problem or creating impact? So it's like, I think that for me, there was always that like big, big tension um, at play. And you're right. Like, I think like, I don't want to be in relationship with people that I don't think are the, like my peers or like that I can like connect with on a deep level. Like I don't want someone to be out of reach. And I think that oftentimes like um, Nicole and I often talk about donors on the pedestal. Like I think that that's two sides of the same coin. The donor's always right, but they're, and they're also like untouchable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to think about how do we bring people together in more of an ecosystem model and mm-hmm. The community-centric fundraising is certainly like an incredible framework that articulates what that can look like. But beyond that particular framework, it's this idea that like there's all these players and how do we all kind of sort of come together? And I think that's why community philanthropy is appealing. It's this idea that like we all have assets and contributions to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that like the notion of community philanthropy can still exist in a major gifts context where one person has a million dollars to give or 10 million or 250 million to give, they can still be part of an ecosystem where like the knowledge that's at the table is like as valuable as the money that's going to propel that knowledge into impact and, and into um, action. Absolutely. Um, so we have, yeah. We have, um, donor volunteer is always right. And don- donor centricity trumps all. And I feel like we could talk about, uh, we're probably going to be able to talk about all of these for a really long time, but give us give some, give us another one. Let's do a bit of a rapid fire. No pressure. I mean, donor centricity should trump everything else. I think one of the things that I often reference, this is like an old reference if folks have like heard me before, but when we think about how we we talk about a gift in a press relief and how big gift announcements are like laid out, I think it's usually starts with like, X institution is so excited to announce that X individual or family foundation has made this gift. Usually the bottom third of the article is like reserved for testimonials and expert commentary from the people that actually like created the ideas that are being funded. Like they are like, and then the beneficiaries. So like the, 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 like that's the organization piece. You'll be lucky if you get a quote from someone that's going to benefit from that philanthropy. That's part of that ecosystem as a community member, as a beneficiary. Um, So to me, like, you know, that speaks to this idea that like, beneficiaries are deficient and they need a donor to save them because those stories often perpetuate this idea that like that individual or that corporation like it makes no knowledge of the structural advantages or should I say privileges that they benefited from to like have all that money to be able to give away like they don't talk about how capitalism has made it possible and like the um, displacement of indigenous people and the like 
genocide of indigenous people and the subjugation of like racialized folks and other other communities has made it possible for that individual or company to be wealthy. And it doesn't mean that you need to start a donor or like a gift announcement by being like, we're so grateful that like this organization who acknowledges their like power and privilege made their money on stolen land. Like it doesn't need to be that explicit, but I think that there, we can't only talk about beneficiaries as like they need saving and then donors without actually talking about all the ways in which their privileges like allowed them to be successful, enable them to have this money. So we do tend to like talk about donors without any reference to privilege and all the things that they've overcome. And then we do tend to talk about beneficiaries and like all the ways that they're deficient or need like support and saving. And I just think that's not a holistic story. And that's not how I would want to be portrayed. I want to be talked, I want to be portrayed in like a more holistic way. And I think everyone ought to like have a little bit more humility to talk about the ways in which they were supported to be successful and the ways in which they benefited um, and like they, they've done things themselves. Like it's not just um, about your like personal determination that got you to where you are. There are things that hold you back in some cases and there are things that propel you forward like generational wealth, like your your intersectional identities. Mm-hmm. It's a rebalance. You know, when I see those, you just talked about the, the um, you know, this, the makeup, the sandwich makeup of an ad, of one of these announcement ads. And I'm seeing a whole bunch of them that remix it to be a, a, a better power balance and everything about it. I just look at it and think you've put the beneficiaries in a better place. You know, I'll, I'll never forget actually working with a, a ultra wealthy couple and they had come to this third party foundation I was working at. One of the things they said is, boy, we'd like to make a gift over 10 million without a newspaper announcement. And I was kind of like, could we dig into that a bit more? And they said, you know, one of the weird parts for us is that the institutions ask us to participate in these things. And we are actually as embarrassed as anybody else uh, of the garish way that they kind of paint the picture of us in, again, a medieval times patron model. So I think there's a desire there, as you said, too, to to figure out the rebalance. I like the word ecosystem because, you know, a lot of our old fundraising language was not just transactional, but almost adversarial. Like we were going into battle. Right. I can see in my mind the donor bill of rights is that original Captain America shield, you know, and you're just kind of like, why are we always at, at you know opposite ends of the table for this? And again, the greatest fundraisers I've seen do a lot of this are people who are embracing that community-centric model for a long time, that it was a conversation, not a negotiation. It was a relationship, not a transaction. Uh, And that can, as you were saying, go up and down the food chain. But for us, our challenge is so much of what we've built has these awkward elements. And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about how the communities of practice are going and what do you think people are picking up and learning from this? Because again, you're giving people space to unravel, unlearn. As I start to do this and with other people too, it's mildly traumatic uh, because you're you're having to confront a lot of stuff, right? You know what our good colleague, uh, Liz LeClaire just tweeted the other day, a donor said to me as a fundraiser, I should have no opinions uh on on society or politics or all these kind of things and you're just kind of like how do we rebuild a place where we can do fundraising in this mm-hmm. so i'd love to hear kind of how that's going because I, I know this is a really different way that this is being done yeah yeah and that's actually so one of our 
other fallacies is you must remain neutral to secure funding. So it's really interesting that that Liz tweeted that out what because number that? We, what number is that? Uh, that one is four. No, three. I'm sorry. We're jumping all around yeah. here. <laughs> I'm making a list, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll give you the list for the liner notes. Remain neutral. Um, okay. Remaining neutral to secure funding. And it's that concept, I think, that we've trained donors. Uh, we trained ourselves that the idea that, that we shouldn't necessarily take a side, that there's space for all sides of an argument, um, often on uh, morality. or And that is, I think that's a flaw in our system. Uh, we all work for organizations where we have a really clear stance on what kind of societal change we're trying to make, whether it be climate or humanitarian, education, youth, seniors, disability, whatever it may be, you have a lens in which you're saying, I'm trying to change something uh, to create some type of positive change. And so then this piece around remaining neutral isn't counter to your mission. Uh, and to the values. And that's one I think that we really have to break down. And I think a lot about why we have this. And I think about fundraising being uh, female. I think about the value we place on female work in society and how we put ourselves in this power imbalance where we come to these positions like this. Uh, whether, you know, however you identify, I think in, in essence, you're in that space. So that's one. And I think to your point, Paul, <clears throat> around the community of practice, last year we hosted seven of them. It started uh, in March uh, with the idea of let's host one, let's see if people actually show up. Um, and it, it, it caught fire. Um, and we felt uh, it was an energy giving exercise for us. And so we had seven throughout the year. We had two different sessions. We had one for white folks and allies and one for folks with intersectional identities. Mm -hmm. uh, and each month we took a look at a different type uh, of issue that we're facing. Um, and essentially it wasn't Tanya and I speaking and, and kind of uh, uh, pontificating about pieces. We would give a little bit of context. And then we would dig into some scenarios or questions uh, and create space for people to work through this. We come with the belief that, yes, we have, we definitely have a good amount of knowledge and lived experience and a lot of passion for this place. But we believe that if we really want the sector to change and we really believe in the sector, we really believe in the transformation we can have, it ha we have to create spaces where people can uh, be vulnerable can come from a space of learning and can come from a space to say, I've learned the wrong things. Uh, I need to unlearn and I definitely don't know everything. And so the workshopping of pieces of scenarios of ideas creates a moment of power for folks to think about how they can make changes in their daily practice. Um, and so it was really incredible for us last year. We've planned this, uh, the first half of this year out, we've had eight sessions from now until June. Um, and each one, again, we're going to be taking a different type of topic. So the ones in February, uh, the first one is around creating anti-oppressive fundraising strategies. What the heck is that? And how do we break that down? And what does that look like? And the second one is managing ch um, challenging donor relationships. So we've got a whole series 
we have these broad topics. And then in the sessions, we invite people to come in, come in from a space of listening and learning and engaging because you know yourself, if you flex this, flex this muscle of trying to figure it out yourself, entering the dialogue, that's where the learning can really take root. Yeah, it's not until something comes out of your mouth that you're used to saying, and it's like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what Kimberly's doing with Clubhouse as well, and just creating spaces for people, even just to talk it out. You know, it's funny you said it that way, Kimberly, because I think we've all experienced that that whole concept that you're. It's easy to fall back into kind of what you've learned and what you've previously done. And then when you say it, you just go, oh, that's not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, although what's exciting is I think everybody's ready to have these conversations. Again, you know, uh, Toronto Foundation, I remember being in a, a discussion circle with donors and donors coming to the place of realization to say, wow, this whole thing was built again, almost backwards. And to, to rebalance is a place, but it needs space and time and the transactional fundraising kind of methods we've built. And it's tough. It's, it's on us campaigns. Right, everything's always in a box, annual fund, campaign, et cetera. Again, maybe that's why I, me personally, I fell into plan giving because it's it's a longer walk. I feel like you got something to say, Tanya. No, no, I think Paul, you certainly like were a huge inspiration for my personal interest in plan giving and that legacy piece. And I felt like what what I certainly took away from like the trainings that we've done together um, and the kind of ethos of planned giving that I really love. And I try and like incorporate it into the conversations I have with donors about gifts that they're going to make in their lifetime is this idea of like legacy, this idea of impact, this like th these sort of bigger, broader conversations around oriented around values. And I found that like before, before I really like understood and like really, like I thought planned giving was very technical and nature and there are some technical elements of it but I think the fact that the conversations are so oriented around values is what we need to bring into our current giving strategies is like let's start there let's start with getting to know each other like let's walk this walk together and you uncover such beautiful stories about people and understand like who they are, the life they've lived, the impact they want to create, their values, their contributions, their like areas where they're still learning and growing when you're not, when there's not that time pressure of like, we got to close this gift by year end. And I think that's like a, a really beautiful thing. And I think when you talked a little bit about the Toronto Foundation's work around power and privilege and trust-based philanthropy, that like resonates really deeply with me. Um, because like, it, you know, if, if anything over the pandemic, like has surprised me is like, how much wealth has been generation generated, even during the most like apparently depressed period of our, our of recent history, where people are like, you know, we're seeing all these memes and images shared of empty grocery stores and like there's like so many folks that are like underhoused and and struggling in so many ways through this pandemic but yet there's so much wealth that's being created like more than ever before there's more billionaires than than ever before in any other point in history and that's like against the backdrop of like you know a global pandemic and so in my own work with the Toronto Foundation, like as a donor, like, you know, it, it's been nice to walk that journey, not as a fundraiser, as a donor and to realize like, 
I'm, I'm not a millionaire. Like I'm not, I'm not a billionaire, but I have like a bit of money to like support my community. And I want to do so in a way that's like intentional, but like, doesn't take up too much space that isn't like resource intensive for the organizations relative to the like size of gift I'm able to make. And also this notion that like, resources actually aren't scarce. Like I'm part of a much bigger ecosystem and like there's a lot of money out there. And what we need to remember is like, are we aligned in values with like the, with the donors that we're working with and are, are they aligned with us? And I think that like, that's the piece around plan giving that I'm trying to bring more into my, my work as a professional fundraiser, because it, it really does feel like, oh my gosh, it's like fight to the finish. If we don't get this gift, if we don't find some way pretzling ourselves and coming up with some proposal because there's this pot of money available. Like let's all quickly, quickly, quickly get into a zoom meeting, come up with an idea. This pot of funding will be available only until the end of this month. It just is like a crazy, like unsustainable way of working. Like it's maddening. We need to really like focus on like, there's actually like an abundance of resources. And I think it's actually the job of bigger organizations to take a much stronger stand in this and stop like taking these adjacent gifts and stop like working on things that are like outside of your core mission. Like let's see ourselves as part of that ecosystem. Let's do more donor sharing with smaller organizations. Let's do more resource sharing with smaller organizations that don't have the same capacity of the big professionalized um, fundraising shops. Let's like work together on like more joint projects. Let's like you know, not need to own things or own a space. I hear that way too much. Like, well, mm. we own this space. We're the experts in this space. Like, mm. we don't need to own anything. Like, there's space for everyone. There's 86,000 charities, but there's like billions being donated in Canada. Like, we could all survive if our missions are relevant and like, and our values are aligned to our donors and vice versa. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about these values and, um, and go back if we can to the, the concept of remaining neutral to secure funding um, to push back on that a little bit. We keep, we are talking about values organizations. I mean, that's from my perspective, articulating your values and, and how they are operationalized as an organization is one of the most important and underappreciated steps in a strategic plan, because from those values comes the culture of the organization. Um, and having worked for environmental organizations, you know, it's not just fundraising that that traditionally remains neutral uh, on issues, mm -hmm. but the entire organization and the leadership of that organization. And I think that the reason that they do that is so that they can work with any governing body that comes into play. They can work with the conservatives and the liberals and the NDP um, because they're not going to favor one political uh, party over another. That doesn't mean that they compromise their values. You yeah, know I think what I mean? Kimberly, I think you're absolutely right. And the one comment I'll make before passing it to Nicole is that neutrality doesn't always re refer to like social issues, political or, you know, politicized issues. It can also be around being neutral around oppression and how like how that shows up in interpersonal interactions between a donor and staff. And I think that like when someone I think we often like use the example of someone saying something that's like, you know, 
very offensive and just like the discomfort and the conversations we have with people around how you might respond to that comment is that people feel like, well, if it's not related to my organization's mission, I don't really want to go there. Right. And so um, like, totally, we understand that, but you know, I don't know any organization, any charity that's not staffed by people. And so any social issue inherently will impact every organization. Doesn't mean that you're going to have a stance on absolutely everything, but ignoring oppressive practices of ignoring like racist or ableist or transphobic or homophobic comments, um, because you don't really want to go there because your organization's not like a queer serving organization. It is not an acceptable way of like, just sort of like trying to get that money. I love like that you, you you're harming that. people yeah. along the way. Thank and, you because yeah. it's, you really clarified it. And, and as organizations think about their values, if their messaging is that we have zero tolerance for X, Y, Z in all of our relationships, then that will empower everybody at the table to, to, um, to um to to show be able to show up with confidence yeah. and feel like they belong yeah yeah i bet you everybody listening when you were t- saying that tanya thought of a time when they were living in that dissonance mm-hmm. i bet you everybody did i sure as hell did yeah. and i think a lot of people have that that point where there's just such a vast space between the operational organizational values and institutional personal values And people will always regret saying, I should have stood up and walked out. I didn't, but that's okay. Because every day is a day to to reset where we want to be. Yeah, you get another chance. You do. There's two more. What are we missing? Uh, We're missing the myth of meritocracy. Okay, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So meritocracy is the idea that... um, People succeed or fail on their merit alone. Mm-hmm. So you succeed or fail in life, in work, in financial success, in happiness, based on how much effort you put in. And this is, I would call it otherwise known as the North American dream, which um, I think is completely false. I have some other choice words for it, but this is a hopefully a child-friendly podcast. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that Um, we only look at the individual story and we say, Paul, you have been successful because you have worked hard. And that's all we look at. And, uh, you know, or Paul, you have not been successful because you haven't worked hard. And so your problems are your own. Completely discounts the institutional and systemic factors of oppression that we have at play. It discounts Uh, the uh, income inequality that we've seen skyrocketing for 30 plus years that Tanya was talking about earlier, discounts colonization, it discounts uh, ableism, it discounts sanism. Uh, Sanism to me is one that I'm I'm learning about the idea that we, uh, anybody with any mental health issues is, is therefore less than. And I think this is a big one that we're thinking about in our time today, but I think about how we, uh, we basically discount this idea of, uh, you know, crazy or madness and, and how that plays out. So the myth of meritocracy, essentially, in, in philanthropy comes back to this notion of if someone has wealth or an organization has wealth, they've built it in a fair, equal place. 
And they deserve to be recognized and celebrated for that without acknowledging the full story that we have. And this is where, Tim, you know, the example of the press release is helpful to get into the piece around like how we're recognizing. And I think silence can speak volumes in this. What are we leaving out of a conversation when we only focus in on this myth? And so this is a, this is a really core tenant that I think we have opportunity to dismantle, to look at a couple of things. We've been talking a lot about our relationship with donors. The other side of this is our relationship with the missions of our organization, with the beneficiaries, and whether they be humans or climate or whatever it may be, is how do we use a more asset-based lens as we think about the communities we're trying to serve? Why is it always this why do we always come from a deficit-based lens? And I'll, I think the reason is we think that a deficit-based lens, that sad, sad story, that individual story is a way to sell, is a way to market, a way to fundraise. Um, but essentially, it, it does a huge disservice. Uh, and that's something I think that we could change um, pretty easily to look at how we tell the stories of folks that benefit from our organizations, uh, the real stories uh, that the whole stories. Uh, and so that's a big piece around the myth of meritocracy is kind of breaking down those pieces. This is playing out actually for me in a, in a couple of weird ways. Right now, you know, in fundraising, uh, everybody wants to talk about cryptocurrency donations. Uh, and every time I raise it, there'll always be some random person, you know, on Twitter or somewhere saying, it's a very terrible medium because of the environmental impact. And, it's, and I always say back to them, have you taken a bird the rest of philanthropy? <laughs> because where did that money come from? It came from extraction. It came from consolidation. It came from keeping away from and off the backs of others. I said, there's a problem with all of it. There's going to be need to be a rebalancing and at least a questioning. And again, this is the part in investments and where the impact investing lens is going to come in. It's kind of exciting that people are asking these questions, but again, as institutions, it's hard because we're kind of like, how are we going to rebuild even the whole concept of the ask? Mm -hmm. We're certainly think, rebalancing from the begging, though. That's what I'm happy to say. I think we've come a long way from there. I love that you brought up crypto because there, it's it's all over the place. One day it's the future, the next day it's a total garbage pit, and I think your point around how well has built and what we've been using in the past. The question then is, what do we want our relationship with crypto to look like? Given what we know about the problematic nature in which philanthropy is built on, mm -hmm. how do we rethink about this? Because it is very detrimental to the climate. Um, and so what is it that we think about? What are the questions? Even if we can do it, should we do it? And how does that affect other forms of giving? It's such a great one for us. I feel like this is one of those existential questions that can really help unravel and help people understand in general. I love that. I love the idea that of just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's a big one. And it's tough. And I think also there, is there there's no clean money. Like I've like wrapped my head around it so many yeah. times and like I've yet to like determine when I can find clean where I can find clean money <laughs> like either like you know maybe the person like had you know made their earn their money not like in a like colonial system um but then where is it invested like you know all of these things like you can really just like drive yourself mad um so you have to just like sort of like as organizations determine like 
what's that line for you? How do you reconcile like the resources that like are coming into your organization? How many questions do you ask? Do you only ask those questions if the gift is over a certain amount of money? Like what, what what's your philosophy? What's your reparative justice that your organization's engaged in? Like beyond just your mission, like what else are you doing to like support community to ensure that you're not creating further harm? Like I think it, it just for me is a reminder that like, we're working in an imperfect system. So we have to like reconcile these big weighty things. And we can do that by like living our values and asking lots of questions. And I think for me, that's the biggest shift about these best practices is this idea of like questioning what we thought we knew. And that's a hard place because we want to think that like after 10, 20, 15, 30, whatever years in the sector that we like know something about fundraising. Mm -hmm. And we do know things about fundraising, but like a lot of the things that we know are like the things that are not working so well and that like are harming us and harming our staff and like leading to like mass like exodus from the sector and burnout and mental health challenges folks don't feel supported. They have to deal with like really challenging interactions with donors and they don't get support from their organization. So, you know, we know things, but like, I think what's more beautiful is this idea that like, there's so much more out there for us to learn. And so if we shift away from this idea that like you will gain expertise through tenure, like to a sector that's constantly evolving, that's about like, you know, learning and unlearning, I think that's like a healthier place. And then for Nicole and I, like, you know, it gives us some comfort that like, we don't need to be the experts because like, nobody's really an expert. Like there's things that we know and things that we know more about and things that we know less about. But if we're open-minded, that like is the most beautiful place to like start any healthy relationship is like being open-minded and, and being open to having your mind changed. And I think that's a hard thing in a sector that like really values and places a premium on, on years of experience and tenure and, and expertise. And so I think we need to like start redefining what expertise and skill looks like for, for fundraising. Attitude and curiosity um, uh, around your work and how you both show up in the world is what really attracts me to both of you. It, it, it's why I want you on this podcast as often as possible. We need to amplify this because it's just such a compassionate way of moving towards change. And I really feel like the world needs that right now. Um, so so yeah. I'm not ending this podcast. I just wanted to say that I just really appreciate you both. We still, we still have one more. Oh, but the other point I wanted to make about that is let's just be very clear, these five fallacies of fundraising, you know, we, it's a, it's a slow evolution and transition. We can't just stop raising money for good causes right now. And you both are working full time, continuing to raise money as you evolve. So, um, so you're, is it fair to say you're, you're moving the needle, like you're kind of gently moving the needle forward and all of these fronts at the same time? How is this translating into your work? Yeah, I think the reason why <laughs> the reason why we skip around on the listicle is because they're all interconnected. The listicle. The listicle. Uh, so it, it's hard for us to sometimes they they, they all bleed into one yeah. another, and that's 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 the movement work. That's emergent strategy. If you've ever read any Adrian Marie Brown, the idea that things are interconnected. And our goal is to move forward on these pieces. And it's not about pulling one lever and leaving the other four alone. It's about continuing to move forward. 
And like anything, like any complex system in nature, uh, there's many, many factors. Uh, but to, I think Tanya's point, your values, and to Paul's point, your values, your intention, the place in which you are and you be, then moves things forward. And that's our goal. You know, you said we're, we're, we're full-time fundraisers. And so how do you make this change happen in your organization? Or how do you create conversations, you know, in the community of practice where people can then take something back to their organization? It's all relational, right? It's all an ecosystem. And so it's about giving people some something to think about, something to chew on, and having them help identify something they can move forward. Oftentimes in this work, people might come to our workshops or community practice and they want something big that's going to solve something institutionally or systemically. The reality is um, nothing ever grew from the outside in, which is a quote from Richard Agamisi. The idea is it ripples. You have to make changes yourself. You have to make change within your team, within your broader team, within your organization. That's how social justice, that's how movements always work. And it's the same thing with philanthropy and equity. And there are some bigger things we can do, but we have to start with ourselves. What a powerful way to frame that. That's that's wonderful. You know, and for our listeners out there too, you know, Patanya, thank you for saying that you don't have to be the expert, have it all figured out, or have the solution to our societal ills mapped out. We talked just before this podcast about why all of us do this. And one of the biggest reasons we do it is for ourselves, so that we know we're making a dent in the universe. But I like that concept, too, to say, I'm just making the waves that I need to make to help. And maybe they'll all come together and, and help make that change. But it doesn't have to be perfect right? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so for all those listening to get started on something and get started on something for yourself, the way you know, it needs to be done out there on your own. You know, again, all of us here are, are doing some incredible work in the sector and in the community, but we also need to be self-healing and feeling like we're moving things forward outside of also the constraints we know that we have to live in. Because that's also the reality of fundraising and major gifts. I was paralyzed with terror at one point now, about 18 months ago, when I said, I know what we need to do, but I fear that if I start pulling that thread, it'll unravel the whole damn thing. Mm -hmm. And fundraising will completely fall apart. Just, you know, clean money and, you know, donors with what intentions. I I just didn't know where to start. And sometimes you just got to step out the front door. Mm -hmm. I want to move this beyond fundraising though, because one of the things that I'm really curious about is governance and the traditional model of nonprofit governance following Robert's rules of order and how decisions are made. And I don't know um, how to do that, but I, I don't know how we can layer decision-making processes from other cultures into it or what to do to fix it. But uh I'd love to dig into that with both of you sometime or anybody. I was just about to say, you keep, you keep starting massive conversations with these two, right? When we're finished. Well, well, there's just so much to talk about. So we've got our next podcast set up. uh, Okay. So, but we only have four. We've got the myth of meritocracy. Donor volunteers are always right. Donor centricity trumps all. Remain neutral to secure funding. Those are the four fallacies that I have so far. I'm missing one. 
the beneficiary needs saving. Oh, okay. Which is all about this donor saviorism that we perpetuate. Yeah. In our in our institutions and in our sector, this idea that uh, whoever the beneficiary is has only deficits, and they need that white knight to come in. And this is actually a, a fallacy of our world, essentially. If you think about every single fairy tale ever, almost, the man comes in and saves the woman. And so we perpetuate it in philanthropy around this need to save the donors. This, uh, yeah. So that's, that's number somebody five. Somebody asked too, why is the white gotta be, knight gotta be white? That's right? Good, I mean, it's just all right? these things constantly that we've just built in, baked in. It's, it's a constant thing. So I hope that you guys will come back. We're always down to continue this, <laughs> like, this like very big, weighty conversation that I think is like a culmination of our like personal interests, our professional work. And like, you know, I think the idea of like a lot of unanswered questions or questions that like have so many multiple perspectives is exciting and energizing for us, which I think is why we started a community of practice. Like we felt like we had something to contribute, but we equally felt like we had something to learn and like we the idea of like the collective wisdom is like very powerful. So I'm always down to like share collective wisdom and collective challenges. I just so want the intersection to do something bigger with you guys, you know, just let us know how we can serve and move some of this work forward because it, it, it's so important and you're both doing such fabulous work. So, you know, any, thank I, you, I'm you, thank you for having us. Well, any ideas, any ideas to continue these conversations, Paul, do you well, have, any- we, have we, we have ideas. It's like not our, uh, it's not like a problem that we have coming up with. Um, <laughs> it's like the time and capacity. Mm-hmm. I have to go though, cause I have a donor meeting. So yeah. um, have a good weekend, everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you both. We are going to keep bringing Tanya and Nicole back as long as they would like to keep coming back because this conversation needs to keep happening. Uh, The work will continue and together we must contribute to building a strong community of practice. So if you'd like to participate in this work or have any questions for Tanya and Nicole, please reach out to them on LinkedIn and I've also included those links in the bio. Thank you so much for spending time in the hub. Please remember to keep widening the circle by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast. We are so glad you're here. See you next time.